What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 26 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it's an honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all learning to be the leaders that we can be in the place that God has put us. Well, today's a special bonus episode. We are sliding in. Usually we do two uh, every month, but this month we're going to get a special one because there is a gentleman that you may have heard of, many of you, named Kerry Newhoff. Carrie may have one of the hottest podcasts on the internet, the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. He travels around the country speaking at the Orange Tour, doing different leadership events across America. He's the teaching pastor and founding pastor of Connexus Church uh, just outside Toronto, Canada. And Carrie has come out with a new book that may be, and I say this in the podcast, in the top three leadership books I have ever put my hands on. The title of the book is Didn't See It Coming, Overcoming the Seven Greatest Challenges That No One Expects and Everyone Experiences. After 28 years in full-time, almost 27, 28 years in full-time ministry, I can tell you that the seven things that Carrie talks about, they are right on the money and they are they hit me right between the eyes. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor it doesn't matter if you're a business owner. doesn't matter if you're a coach. You will be blindsided by these seven things if it weren't for leaders like Carrie Newhoff. Today is more than a bonus episode. Today is just absolute gold wisdom from truly one of America's greatest leaders. I am an avid listener of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. If you don't subscribe, you need to stop right now, go to the show notes and link over and subscribe today because I'm telling you, it comes out every week and it is just spot on on the money. Well, today is such a blessing. Carrie's one of the guys I've wanted to have on for so long and when we got the opportunity, we jumped on it. And you are going to love it. So pull out a pen, pull out a piece of paper, get your thumbs ready if you're typing into your phone or your keyboard ready if you're typing it into your computer. And I want you to pull up a chair and listen in to my time with Carrie Newhoff. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It is an honor to have you. Mike, it's a privilege to be here. And thanks for what you do to help leaders, many of them in the business community, really appreciate your ministry and what you do. Well, as a fan of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, we'll have all that info in our show notes. It is a, it's an intimidating thing to get to sit down with you today, but it's going to be a fun journey because the new book you've got coming out, Carrie, is so spot on for mm -hmm. leaders. Is this something that you almost feel like, man, this has been all the years that I've been in leadership, all piling up 
and me reflecting on all that time? Is that sort of where all this came from? Yeah, you know, perceptive question, Mike. Yeah, I th- I think so. Like it took me my whole life to write this book. So I think I'm done. No, I, mean, um, <laughs> I, it was one of those things where, yeah, I burned out 12 years ago, and the book is not all about burnout. But it caused a lot of introspection. And I've spent the last 12 years trying to reconstruct my life. Mm-hmm. Number one, I guess, initially, so you don't burn out. Once you burnt out, and lots of people have burned out, you know, lots and lots and lots of people. Once you do it, you never, ever want to go back. But in the process, I'm like, okay, what were some of the unhealthy patterns? What were some of the things that I was struggling with that, that really were a cap on, mm-hmm. on what God wanted to do in my life and in my leadership? And so I've kind of reflected on that. And then I've spent a lot of time, you know, especially over this last decade, but throughout my life, even in my 20s, I tell some lost stories in the book, too, because that's what I did prior to ministry. I've always been a, a dot connector. I'm always trying to figure out patterns. I'm always trying to say, okay. Yeah, I know this is something I struggle with, but look look at this guy. He's struggling with it too. And look at her. This seems to show up. And, you know, having pastored a church like you have for um, over 20 years, uh, you, just, you just start to see trends and patterns. And so I kind of isolated seven issues that I certainly have struggled with to differing degrees. Um, not all of them have been as big in my life, but I know that almost everybody struggles with these. And if we can nail these things, if you can, and they are nailable, like you, you know, you don't have to be insecure forever. You do. If you're a cynic, you don't have to stay a cynic. You can get out of cynicism. Life goes better. Leadership goes better. And I, I think, you know, for those of your listeners who may be Christians, it's, it is, I think the ancients, I think I wrote that in the book somewhere, they called it sanctification, but we don't even know what that means anymore. And, you know, we just call it counseling <laughs> That's right. or, or we call it therapy or we, you know, and listen, as a young leader, if you got a lot of young leaders listening, I, I sent people to counseling. I did not go to counseling. I was too proud. I was That's too right. together. I had, a, you know, I wasn't one of those weak people and, you know, you live a little bit longer and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm pretty jacked up, pretty messed up. So anyway, it's, it's that internal dialogue that honestly, it's bigger than leadership. I think that's what sinks marriages. I think honestly, that's what sinks careers. You know, you have you have the person who's got all kinds of competency. They're really smart. They got a high IQ. They've read all the books. They're super smart. And nobody wants to work with them. Or they've got something going on in their life. They're imploding under an addiction, or they just can't seem to get their stuff together. And you're like, what's with that person? There's so much potential. And that's the stuff that sinks leaders. So that's what I wanted to write about. And yeah, it's, it's 30 adult years of connecting the dots prayerfully, looking inside, looking around and going, I think these are the seven that have got a piece of real estate in most of our lives. And they really are blind spots. You know, as I mm. was reading this, Carrie, um, and I was telling you before we went on the air, this book and the book Leadership Pain by Dr. Sam Chan are the two books that when I read them, I went, yeah, that's yeah. that's so good. And some of the stuff, and we'll hit it in the interview, some of the stuff, I'm like, man, I hadn't even thought about that. That is not even, oh, wow. I, yeah, I haven't even dreamed that, oh, yeah, maybe that could be me. Maybe that, and there, I'll hit one in a second, that I'm reading it even this morning, going back through my notes going, man, that one hit way close to home. 
and uh, you know the uh, engine lights are going off you know yeah about yeah. that and I love the title too I didn't see it coming which really is a blind spot for leaders and the first one you said is cynicism I think and this is and I'm judging you by by podcast mm. you seem like a pretty positive glass half full personality is cynicism something you ever thought could hit your life that you no. ever thought, man, that could ever be me? Walk, walk me through that a little bit. No, but it did. Um, yeah, I would say I'm wired as an idealist. I'm, I'm wired for sure as a very positive person. And even coming through law, and for me, my time in law was brief. It was a year in downtown Toronto, plus all the training around that bar admissions, the whole deal. Um, I, I stayed pretty positive. Like I was like, woohoo, you know, and went into ministry with wide eyes, but a decade into ministry, uh, I, I found my heart growing really dark, really cynical, um, because it had been snapped a bunch of times in that decade. And cynicism for me was a precursor to burnout. And then, you know, again, connecting the dots and looking at other people, I began to realize, wow, there's a lot of cynical older people. Mm -hmm. You know, the coffee club that sits around on Tuesday morning complaining about the world. And of course, those guys have it all solved. They've got it all figured out, right? (laughs) You know, you know, you've been to that Starbucks, Uh, you've been to that coffee shop, and they got it all figured out. And then they go home and do nothing, you know, (laughs) that's right. That's right. And I was getting there. You know, where where somebody, you know, when you're planning your church, you're so, or starting a business mm-hmm. or, you know, starting a career, whatever you happen to be doing, you're so excited and like your church is going to be different than everybody else's and your business is going to thrive and all your customers are going to be happy and no staff are ever going to leave, you, you know, and, and, <laughs> and that's, yeah, exactly. We laugh now, yeah. but we all believe that, Absolutely. right? I mean, didn't you believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I totally believed it because we're different and the rules don't apply to us. And then somebody leaves our church and then you're on round three of staffing because this person didn't work out and that person didn't work out. And then you look in the mirror and like, is it you? And then I got to the point in my late thirties where we've had, you know, and we were growing church. So we had our front door by the grace of God was always bigger than our back door. But you know, there was a back door. And there's always a back door. Everybody says, we don't have a back door. Oh, then you're a cult. Okay. But so everybody's, everybody's got a back door. <laughs> you just door, locked right? the back door. That's, <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. Then you're like, call the police. Okay. You're not allowed to do that to people. Uh, so you always have, you always have a, a back door, Mike. Yeah. But, you know, I was to the point by the end of my 30s, a decade into ministry, where if you walked in with your wife and family to my church, I kind of could size you up in two seconds. And I'm like, oh, I know how this one's mm. going to end. Mm. And I'd written you off before I knew your name. Wow. Like, what is that? And, you know, I'm not, I I realized on the other side of burnout, that's a separate story. But on the other side of burnout, reconstructing my life, I'm like, wow, is this just inevitable? Is this a death sentence on my future? Like, this is going to be the rest of my life? Like, what happened to that idealistic church planter, that idealistic young lawyer who was going to, you know, change the law forever, whatever happened to him, what happened to the the dreams that God gave me. And fortunately, 12 years on the other side of that burnout, I think I'm possibly more optimistic. And, you know, you know what it is at the end of the day, because you're like, oh, optimist, you're, you're an idiot. No, no, because that's what, (laughs) that's what pessimists who call themselves realists would say. Yeah. you know, we're all former optimists, but here's, mm. here's the deal on the other side of like, okay, I've done the, It's not my first rodeo. I've done this a few times. What I've realized is leaders who thrive 
see life for what it really is. Mm. Yes, this person could leave our church. Yes, it may be a tough quarter. Yep, there are real struggles in this marriage, but they keep their hearts fully engaged. Mm. Mm. And what a cynic does, a cynic hides his heart. Mm. A cynic, a cynic is like, I'm not, it's just so much easier to be cynical than it is to engage. It's so much easier to say, oh, I, I know what's wrong with Mike. I know what's wrong yep. with him. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, what's next on the agenda? Rather than go, hey, Mike, can we talk? Yeah. Whoa, all of a sudden I'm out there. All of a sudden I'm vulnerable. And, and the cynic is actually scared. If, mm. if you really mm. look at what's happening in the life of a cynic, the cynic is, it's just way easier for me to stay under this mask, roll my eyes at my kids, rather than to really engage them. You know, just kind of go, oh, well, that's just our marriage, rather than to say, hey, remember when we were dating? Yep. And I, I went through a period about a year where I realized I felt like God was speaking to me. It's like, are you going to reengage your heart? And I didn't want to because I had a couple of friendships that went bad, you know, series of church things that had happened, which are just inevitable yep. uh, on this side of eternity. And I realized one of the most vulnerable things I ever had to do was literally, I felt like I was putting my heart in my hands mm. and putting it out there. And then what you realize when you do that, when you come out of your shell of cynicism and you actually put your heart back out there, you realize, huh, 90% of the time, it's actually good. 90% right. of the people are not out to, you know, to hurt you. Yeah, there's, there's 10%, okay, or 5% or 2% or pick your, pick your number that, okay, these are bad apples. These are difficult people, or this guy's just a bit foolish. But now you've got some wisdom. You've got, you've got some laps, some reps. And you're like, okay, I think I know what to do with this. But that doesn't mean I can't pray for them. That doesn't mean I have to retreat to my shell. So I'm, I'm actually really enjoying this phase of life where, you know, you can be curious, you can be open. Um, you're not a fool. You've learned. But man, you're having like life giving conversations and relationships. So there is hope on that. And that's what I hope the message of the book is. There's hope on the other that's side right. of cynicism. You don't you have do to be a, a cynic. And you do a great job. What I love is you lay out the issue. But then you do a great job saying, okay, here are some things you can do to help yourself. And I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a glass half full person almost to my detriment. You know, at times I don't look at the, the reality that other people may see. I'd sort of gloss that over. But you made a statement, and this was the this was the one that got me because I read, "Well, I hmm. cynicism. I don't deal with cynicism. I, I like people. I've been around this game." Here was the statement you made. I thought that was so good. You said, "Cynicism doesn't begin when you don't care. It begins because you do care." And I think that man, Carrie, that is so good that people mm. would go almost and the, and we've been in this business long enough to know the enemy's the great counterfeiter right i mean he yes. takes the good that we're so good at and then he just spins it around do you find that for positive we'll, we'll go the positive route for positive people that's how cynicism slips in the back door for them and gets in their blind spot is because they do care so much nobody cares like them a hundred percent. Yeah, you nailed it. And for me, I'm a really hoping, hopeful, trusting person. Like, you know, if, right. if I meet you, I'm going to trust you. And if you, if you tell me, you know, ABC, I'm going to believe ABC. And what happened in that first decade of, and I, I spent 10 years, most of my twenties training, cause you know, I came into ministry 
um, <laughs> late in the game. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be done earlier, but oh, I guess God's not done with me. So really, it was my 30s that was the proving ground as a leader. And I, I, you know, I really cared. But you go through, like we talked about earlier, you know, one round of staff, two rounds of staff, mm-hmm. you know, these people left and now these people left and now these people left and now these people left. And I was really caring, like I care. And I'm like, okay, I got more gas in the tank. Let's go. And then you're like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know whether I got more gas left in the tank. And then I don't know whether I want to. And that's what, what cynicism does and what it did for me and what I've seen it do to a lot of people is you start, and this is the critical mistake, you start projecting past failures onto future situations. Mm. So that's why when you walk into my church, when you walk into my store, when you walk into my company, you know, I'm like, oh, I know how this ends. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you don't. You have no idea how this ends. You don't even know his name. You don't know his story. Uh, You don't know any of that stuff, but you start projecting. It's like, you know, when you run into somebody who maybe hasn't had the good fortune of having a marriage that's worked out or serial date or whatever. And they're like, well, I'll tell you what all men are like, or I'll tell you what all women are like. Well, no, that's not true. You know? And, And yeah, there's a little bit of truth in it, but that's not true. Or that whole industry is corrupt. Well, maybe if you're mafia, yeah, but yeah. like for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, yeah, like, you know what, there is some good in law. And I know people love to hate lawyers, you know, yeah. it's that love hate relationship, but there are some really good people. And, yeah. uh, and so it's always more complex than a cynic wants to make it out to be, but cynicism safe. And yeah. that's what's problem with it is, is you live in your hardened little shell, and you look out over the world, and you've got it all figured out, because you're just oh, oh so smart. <laughs> oh, yeah. And people love to rally to cynics and they love to listen to cynics. And mm-hmm. it's a uh, it is it can be its own captivating room at times to fall to fall into. And as a leader, you know, you live a public life. We'll speak to you. You yeah. live a very public life. But the reality is for as much time as you're out in public, there's a private side of you. And you you talk about in the book, one of those blind spots, one of those things you didn't see coming was that area of compromise. And as you look across not only your life, but the landscape of leaders, you watch guys that that are compromising, probably not big things, probably really small things. What does compromise do to a leader that they don't see? What is yeah. the, what's the chink, Carrie, that's hitting them they don't see coming in their life? Well, I think for moral compromise, which is uh, what one of the things I, I deal with in the book, we always think about the headline. And unfortunately, we've had way too many of those headlines in the church world and politics and sports where, you know, you find out somebody was part of a sex ring or, uh, you know, stole money or tax fraud or, or whatever. And, and it's those stories. And most of us, I think, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're in sports, you're in church world, whatever you happen to be, we're like, well... I don't think that's going to be my story. And you know what? Uh, Hey, you got to watch for pride. You got to watch for that. But reality is for 90 whatever percent of us, the answer is, yeah, you're right. It's not going to be your story. You're probably not going to have an affair. You're probably not going to steal money. You're probably not going to do something that will get you fired or, or whatever. But moral compromise is more sophisticated than that. Mm. And it's more subtle than that. And the the problem with, I think, a lot of us is we have a gradual creep in our moral standards. So, for example, you know, we wouldn't say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. 
But the one occasional drink became a daily drink, became three drinks, became every single night. And you're like, how did I end up here? Or, you know, it could be food. You know, a lot of Christians don't drink. They just eat instead. And so, you know, you're like, whoa, how did that happen? Right. Or, or honestly, where it showed up probably most powerfully in, in my life or most noticeably in my life was, again, in my 30s, there was a growing gap between my public talk and my private walk. And, you know, I'm in ministry. So people ask you, how's your relationship with God? And you're tempted to go, it's great, because what else are you going to say as a pastor, right? Mm -hmm. When you may not have had a, a great experience in prayer over the last month, or your scripture reading feels flat. Now, I don't, I don't think you need to start confiding in perfect strangers going, you know what, it's really not that great. Can you, mm -hmm. you got time for a coffee? Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you need to do that with strangers. But I, I really worked hard at aligning my public talk and my private walk. And so I might say, when I really became aware of this, it would be like, hey, I got to be honest in what I'm saying. And I would say, you know what, it's got its ups and downs. But overall, I'm really thankful for what I get to do. How are you, Mike? You yeah. know, and so that's a truthful answer. It's not a deep answer. Now, I might be sitting down with a counselor or my best friend, or my wife, or my small group unpacking like, I don't know why I'm not hearing from God. Do you guys see anything in that? Um, what is there? But I, I think the problem is that we we don't reveal what's really going on. Mm. And that creates this false persona, right? It's almost like Instagram or any social media. Sure. You want to portray the best parts of your life, not the real parts of your life. That's why my kids are grown now. But uh, my favorite social these days in 2018 is uh, Instagram stories. So yep. I'm on stories almost every day. And like, they're like, Dad, what we love about stories is that's the real you. Like the awkward idiot you that we know and we love. <laughs> he, he shows up. And I think you've got to be able to, it's not that the rest of it's fake. It's just, you know, use different things for different purposes. But that's where the whole me tends to show up. And I think you have to, uh, particularly for those of you who lead companies, you know, if you're if you have any kind of public profile, you need to be 100% sure that your public image, that your kids would recognize your public image, let me put it that way. And, and, and sometimes that's not true, because we're like, well, we can't and there are certain things you shouldn't talk about, you shouldn't take your therapy session onto a stage with a microphone. But you should be talking about that with somebody. But authenticity is the new cool. Right. Like when you look at church, mm. we had cool church in the 90s, the 2000s. Uh, authenticity is a new cool. And and um, I, I don't mean that auth you should do authenticity because it's cool. I just mean I think cool church is dead and yep. people are looking for authentic. They're looking for real. They're looking for hope. And people identify with your strengths, but they resonate with your weaknesses. No doubt about and it. if you can if you can speak from that place of brokenness, which I seem to have uh, an endless supply of, then, <laughs> then uh, you know, you, you resonate with people and they go, hi, you're just like me. And it's like, well, of course, we're all people. Like, what did you think? And then all of a sudden you've got common ground. Then, mm. then all of a sudden you've got a place, but I've got a, and if you're, if there's a gap, like if, if you're listening right now and you're thinking, uh Oh, there's a big gap between what I say and who I really am. Here's what you do. Humble your talk and accelerate mm. your walk. So Good it's like, church, just be man. really careful what you're saying. Just like notch down that conversation a little bit and work twice as, and, and I think ultimately the key to compromise 
or avoiding it is work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Because, hey, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the business world, church world, sports world, whatever, um, you're, you're already hyper-driven. I mean, you're, you're a podcast listener. You're probably taking courses. You're training. Uh, you know, you're, you're doing whatever you can to improve your skill set. But, you know, I wrote about Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says, imagine, you know, what you want people to say at your funeral. Mm. And I, I took that a step further in, in the book, sort of building off what Stephen Covey had to say, because I thought he was so right. You know, it's really weird. <laughs> Mike, as much as you know, you, you're doing this podcast, you've led a church for over two decades, you know, you're, you're working so hard on whatever you're doing. I've written books, you know, I've got my own podcast, mm. you know, that I've led a church for decades. You know what happens to all of us, if we're remembered at all? Eventually, our life gets reduced to a sentence. Right. You know, at first it's like lots of tears. It's like, oh, my dad, he was this, he was that. But give it a year or two. And eventually it's, you know, oh, Carrie, he was a blank. Yep. Hey, can you pass the salsa? That's exactly and right. That's what happens, right? And so you get what is in that blank? What is in that? Oh, Mike, he was really. Eh. Yep. And, and you've done enough funerals. I've done enough funerals to know that sometimes families are working really hard to come up with something nice to say. That's exactly about right. About the deceased. You know, and sometimes us, you, yeah. And for us, it's the worst part of the job and the best part of the job. Because every time you do one, it is that great reminder of, wow, this is what matters. And we just took sure. this phenomenal man's life and we did it in 15 minutes. I did a 15 minute yeah. message talked about him and it's done and they're going to put a sentence on the tombstone and that is what and I'm telling you I hate doing them and I love doing them because it is the great reminder of what truly matters in this world and you know let me ask you this question Karen I was thinking about this while I was reading it you think you're ever done deepening your character do you ever do you think there's ever a place on this side of heaven that that God looks at Carrie whether you're a businessman or a lawyer or you're in whatever field you choose to be in, do you think you're ever done on this side of heaven working on that process? Nope. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you're not. You're not. I was hoping you're not you had done. a different answer, man. That's and the nice. reason I know you think, okay, I've made enough progress. Can we just stop yeah. now? And the answer is no, you no. can't. Because really, uh, you know, from my perspective as a Christian, you're trying to grow into the likeness of Christ. Yeah. When is that done? But even, you know, think about it, maybe I, I assume a lot of people listening are Christians, but let's say you're not, you're not convinced. Um, I'll tell you what your kids remember at your funeral. They remember your character. It is 100% about your character. Exactly right. As many funerals as you and I have done, I've never, ever seen a son reach into his back pocket and pull out his dad's latest stats. Look at the fourth quarter. Did you see how much money they made? Look at how many downloads he had on his podcast. Like, wasn't that amazing? Nobody ever pulls out your spreadsheets at your funeral. Mm. And a lot of us spend all of our time thinking about our spreadsheets, our results, our numbers, our goals, our objectives. You know what your kids talk about? He took me fishing. Boy, that's so good. Golly, he, that's so good. He was so good with the grandkids. Yeah. Or you know what else I've noticed a lot of? And then think about this in your own life. Because you could read this book, and I don't want you to read this book and go, oh, my gosh, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. It's too late. It's over. You know, if your 75-year-old chain-smoking father called you one day and said, you know what, I've given up cigarettes, I've turned my life over to Christ, and I'm reconciling with your mom, 
would that make an impact on you? Mm. There's not a single adult child in the world who wouldn't say, I've been waiting for this day so for so many years. And even if that was the last two years of his life, mm. you would remember the good, not the bad. That's so right. to every older person listening, you're like, it's too late. My kids are gone. They're out of the house. They're watching. That's right. And the change in your character right now is going to be huge for them. And that is the legacy that you're leaving. That is, you know, in my case, the faith that you're modeling. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're ever done. And it's, 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 it's a chance to really plumb what the Apostle Paul said, you know, the richness of God, like there's so much richness, there's so much grace, there's, there's an opportunity to grow in wonder and praise and, uh, an opportunity really build into relationships and go deeper. So, you know, time, the thing about time is it either makes things better or it makes things worse. You never stay the same. Nope. And unfortunately for a lot of people with unresolved issues, time makes it worse. I don't think I put this in the book, but a mutual friend of ours, I'm sure he's a mutual friend, Lane Jones. Do you know yep. Lane? I do. I turned 50 a few years ago. Lane's on the senior leadership team at North Point, start one of the founding uh, pastors of North Point. And I remember being 49 and nine-tenths or whatever. And uh, Lane said, Carrie, your, your 50s are going to be magnificent. And we're close enough that I just like, Lane, how can you even say that? Like, you, can, you have no idea. You don't have a crystal ball. They could be a train wreck, right? Like, and Lane's a few years older than I am. And he just said, hey, Carrie, he says, listen, no, I know they're going to be great. He said, because you did all the hard work in your 30s and 40s. And he says, you reap what you sow. Ooh, and buddy. He says, so you're going to do a lot of sewing in your 50s. And my 50s haven't been perfect, but they've been good. That's so and good. I think he's right. So, you know, do that. If you do all the hard work in your 20s, your 30s will be better. And honestly, if you do all the hard work in your 60s, it's not too late. Your 70s will be better. And so that is, the, that is why you have to work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Because I think your character is the only thing that people remember. And nobody, here's the funny thing about working on your character. Nobody ever pays you to do it. Nope. They'll pay you to take a course. They'll pay you to, you know, uh, it, you know they'll pay you to go listen to this podcast. Uh, but they, they will fire you if you don't. I mean, if your character gets way out of control, they'll fire you. But they'll never pay you to develop it. So that's something you have to do on your own. Do you think, and I know one of your other uh, pitfalls that you nailed that it's so easy for a guy to fall into is being disconnected. Do you think that your lack of character sometimes keeps you from wanting real community that keeps you from wanting people around you because you don't want them to know the real you? And I remember, I remember Maxwell saying years ago, the higher up the leadership ladder you climb, the less options there are. And the higher up the leadership ladder you climb, the less people there are. There aren't as many people there. Do you think that leads to some of that disconnection, that that lack of character and that moral compromise, even at times, even in the smallest of things, we don't want people to get close to us? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I think that's probably true for some people. I'm not sure it was ever true for me. There was never a period in which I pushed people away because I didn't want them to see the real me. I think there's a part in me and I think there's a part in, in the human heart that really longs to be known mm. and to be understood. Uh, a lot of people get frustrated in their marriage because I, they think, I thought you were the person who was going to know me completely and you're just frustrated with me every day, right? <laughs> so 
I don't know whether that that was ever my story. I think it's some people's story, but I'll, I'll tell you what it is. I think at the very fabric of disconnection is, is the whole human story in our relationship with God. When Jesus had to summarize what is a, the relationship that, that, you know, what is the most important thing about our, our life and faith? He said, love God with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is that? It's relationship. Mm. And guess what sin broke? That's right. The relationship. So I feel, what I do feel is this push-pull. I feel this pull toward community and a push away from it. Yep. And that hasn't really gone away. Now, I, I value and savor friendships as much as I ever have at this point in my life. But I think that propensity to disconnect is very real. Mm. And what I would do... I've found my my conversations with the people closest to me have always been very real, very, very authentic, even at their worst, when I was at my worst, I should say. But there is something in me that just says, ah, I don't need people. Mm. And, and that never seems to go away. It's a push pull. My wife and I talk about it all the time because she's like, hey, you want to hang out with so-and-so and so? I'm like, I just need a night off. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, that could lead to a month off, could lead to a year off, that could lead to a life off. Now, I think eventually if I got totally disconnected, but, you know, it's easy to blame technology. And I think technology has made it, it's amplified and revealed what's already there. Yeah. So when you look at technology, you know, how many times have you sat in a room? Nobody's talking to each other everybody's on their phone to somebody who's not in the room, yep. which is problematic. Um, but loneliness is this epidemic. We've never been more connected and we've yep. never felt more alone. And that's something really peculiar about our culture. But I think as, as you suggested with your question, it is much deeper than that. It's not a technology problem. It's a human problem. That's right. Because go back to, you know, I think our kids are similar age. We're probably at a similar stage in life. I go back to when I was a kid and like, you know, what did you often do? You just sat around a TV. So you didn't have a little screen in your pocket. You had a big one, or actually they were small back then in your living room and you all watch TV rather than really engage. And, That's right. Or, you know, you had the teenager phone in your house. <laughs> some, some, some leaders will remember that where, you know, you're just on the phone all the time or you're distracted or you were raised by the dad who had the muscle car in the garage and always went in there every night after dinner to work yep. on it. And somehow it was never done because he never wanted it to be done yep. because it was his escape. Escape from what? People. Yep. <laughs> right? That's right. And, and I think that is an age old problem. So, you know, for me, it means my phone, which I've got right next to me is on do not disturb uh, 98% of the time. Um, it's just always on do not disturb. Uh, I find that really helpful. Uh, sometimes I leave it behind for a period, I, I will work really hard to foster relationships and experiences. You know, I have um, two, three hobbies, two of which are very social. So uh, biting, biking rather, biting, I don't bite people. No. Uh, biking. <laughs> That's right, biking, biking. definitely yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Uh, there's a fun quote. Anyway, uh, biking, like bicycling, yeah. I love it. And then boating and barbecue. So boating and barbecue is really social. And we always take people out on our boat and you're just, you're away. Like when we have a lake across the street from us. 
so we can afford a boat. We're on that side of the street. And, uh, you know, when you're on the water, it's like a two hour vacation. That's Last right. Friday, we took uh, one of my sons and my nephew, and we just went on this day trip up a canal and some locks. And we might as well be in somewhere else in the world. And you're just connected in a way that's really, really cool. And then barbecue is really social. You know, we have friends over all the time. And um, so I, I find I have to create my life in such a way that I program in relationships. And when I do that, I'm healthier. That's so good. That's so, the, the quote out of that chapter that just snagged me was solitude is a gift from God, but isolation is not. And boy, I think I think in leadership you go, well, I deserve this. I need to get away. I need, and we do. We do. But we don't need to get away from people. And I love that because you do such a great job because it is more than technology. I mean, it is oh, technology's yeah. piece. I, I don't remember who the, the photographer was that took the picture. Have you seen that? Uh, the photographer took the picture of a of an auditorium full of people that were that were on their cell phones, but he removed their cell phones. So they were able to remove the picture. No, I haven't seen that. Carrie, it's one of the greatest pictures you've ever seen. And it's this whole room full of people looking at their hand. And it is one of the most convicting things I've ever seen. They have a husband and wife right after a wedding are standing at their car, just married car, both looking at their hands. They just removed the picture of the phone. It is a powerful look because we do lose so much community that really at the end of that boating ride, you probably went, now that was exactly what my soul needed. And you hit a quote in there that Dallas Willard told John Ortberg when he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Do you find that you can almost um, encourage hurriness because it makes you feel like you're more productive? Do you find oh, that being yeah. true for you? Every entrepreneur, every driven leader, every person with an ounce of ambition, we love hurry. And I love hurry. I mean, I'm very A-type. Um, but, you know, John, John shared that with me. I think he's got it in some of his books, too. And it's just the most convicting, horrible Man. thing. And when you hear John, because I've gotten to know him a little bit, when you hear John talk about his relationship with Dallas, like that was Dallas Willard. Like the phone would just ring like crazy and he would ignore it. And mm. he had all the time in the world for you. And, you know, that that's just so convicting to me. And the, the other thing you think about, whether this is intimacy with God and intimate friendship, intimacy even with your with your spouse, intimacy never happens in a hurry. It never happens that's in so a hurry. Good. Intimacy needs time. It needs space. It needs no distractions. It's just, it needs focus and there's no intimacy in a hurry. And, you know, I'm, I'm convicted that love has a speed and it's slower than I am. That's good. It's just whatever, whatever the speed of love is, it is slower than me. And I am, I'm always going, I'm always moving. And love is just slower than that. Love Mm -hmm. lingers, love pauses, love stops. And me, I'm already gone. Yep. So it's just convicting. That is so, it was, that was so convicting. Yesterday I had a day and there's people I need to go back to today to go, man, I'm sorry. You know, I I walked past a conversation. I didn't engage when you needed engagement. And it was, I was reading it. I'm like, man, I was going through my notes this morning thinking, 
golly, I wish that wasn't in the book. I'm glad it was there, and I wish it wasn't there because I feel terrible about hurrying through and uh, on my way to good things, on my way to go do good things, but missing no. the most essential things. Well, and you quoted Maxwell, and isn't he the guy who says, walk slowly through That's the room? exactly right. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go like a beeline through the room because I'm on a mission. And, yep. you know, we have all these tasks, but our mission is people. That's right. And I'm the first guy to forget it, the first guy to miss it, the first guy to be scared of people. That's one thing that changed after my burnout is I don't have a fear of crowds, but like it takes work for me mm. now to, and, and the good, you know, to walk into a room full of people I don't know and engage them. Wow. I would much rather sit in the corner with my best friend and just talk for an hour. So, so I have extrovert memory, fortunately, so I, I can do that. But that's one thing that's been different since I burned out. But the good news about all this is these are skills that can be learned. These that's are right. disciplines that can be learned. So, you know, if it really is a core value and you're always distracted, like how many, how many parents, if you have young kids, you know, your, your daughter wants you to read a book. You know, like, I don't have time to read a book, but so you, you know, get a bedtime book for her and you start reading and you ever skip pages as a parent, you know, yep. and then your kid who can't even read is like, Hey, you skipped a page. And you're like, how can, how did you know that? You don't even read. Right. Like, you know, and every parent, I, I know a lot of parents have been convicted by that, but like, wow, well, what if you just, you know, had all the time in the world, Stephen Covey tells this story about or his daughter I think tells the story about when he was alive his kids were maybe in their teenage years or heading into their teenage years uh he was in New York speaking at this major event and he was having a daddy daughter date so they they had it all planned out they've been planning for months they were going to go to this store then they were going to go to a play then they were going to go to this restaurant then they were going to get ice cream then they were going to jump the subway then they were going to do this then they were going to do that so he spoke at this massive conference in front of thousands of people and he ran into an old um, acquaintance that he hadn't seen in years. Maybe it was a business partner or something. And he was like, oh, Stephen, I can't believe we've run into you and this is amazing. And wow, we got to have dinner. Why don't you come for dinner with us tonight? And Stephen Covey looked at his friend and every leader who's ever been in that place could know what that is like. And there's probably, you know, dollars on the line or a relationship on the line. And Stephen Covey looked at his, his long lost friend and he said, I would absolutely love to, but not tonight. Wow. Tonight's my special time with my daughter. Mm. Why don't we mm. catch up some other time? And she said that was a life-changing moment for her. I, I wish was. I was more that kind of dad yep. when I was younger. I well, can't and, say I got that right all the time. And you and I are posted. So my my son is 24, my daughter's 21, and your kids yeah, are growing 26, now. 26, 22. Yeah. yeah, so we're right there together. And those are times we drove my daughter back to college last week, and we're selling our home. And the night before she left to go back, we packed the truck. She's moving into an apartment up at Liberty and packed the truck. And she was sitting in the room, and I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm just thinking back that the next time I come home, we won't be here. And wow. this house I've grown up in, and you're like, what happened? You know, I'm packing, heading back to Liberty. All I'm thinking about is tomorrow, I got to get you back. I got to get it back for other stuff this weekend at North Star. And she's unpacking memories, and it goes so quick, and you, you don't get to get them back. And there's things you wished you could have done differently, even though it's not too late, and you do things right from this point forward. 
it's a it is a it is an interesting process of life. It is for sure. It really. Oh, is. I hear you, Mike. I totally hear you. And but you know what's interesting and what I'm learning now that my kids are adults is they're still watching. They're still That's listening. Right. And I'm spending all Thursday with my youngest son. We're heading into uh, Toronto, which I live north of. Yep. And we're going to, we're just, you know, it's back to school shopping. He's got his first career job. So we got to pick up a few things. I'm going to pick up a few things. Um, but the point is not, you know, going to the store to get some suits fitted or whatever. The point is we get to hang out. That's right. And we get to, we get to build memories together and spend time together. And, and that never really goes away unless you want it to go away. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I remember one of my mentors growing up was a guy named Ike Reichert, and Ike used to make a statement. Mm. His statement was, the pioneers of one generation can become the critics of the next generation. And when I read your chapter on irrelevance and how quickly a business, an organization, a leader can become irrelevant, Man, it made that statement that I've heard Ike make so many times. We started North Star when I was 28 together. And now I look back and I'm turning 50 this year. And you're like, man, I could be that guy that becomes irrelevant. Is that something you think about a lot, Carrie, as a leader at Conexus and as a leader just in general of not wanting to be that guy? Oh, yeah. I've, I've thought about it since I was a kid. And, you know, noticing the generation gap, which was, which was really fascinating to me. But uh, I, you know, the thing, and this sounds so trivial, but it's so true. When I started ministry, I was 30. And I would go, churches were tiny. I mean, I came to three dying churches, they were supposed to die. And by the grace of God, they didn't, they grew like crazy. And it's a great story that God wrote. But, you know, when you got six people attending your church, you got time for visitation. So <laughs> I did, I did visitation. And these are people who'd been around for, you know, they were all in their 70s or 80s. And I visit their homes. And, you know, this is the mid 90s. And I felt like I was transported back in time to the 60s or 70s when I visited their home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was like, remember, um, brown and olive green appliances, yes, it was full of that shag carpet before it was cool again, teak furniture before it was cool again. And even when you know, they had to dress up for a funeral or a wedding or something, it'd be these polyester suits <laughs> from the 70s that still fit, I guess. And I'm like, wow, how on earth does this happen? And I'm not the most style conscious guy in the world. But I'm like, you know, I knew it wasn't 1971 anymore. And what's going on? And how do you become this? Well, you know, when we were in our 20s, and this all is pushing toward irrelevance, we, uh, we just begged, borrowed and not quite stole, but we thought about it furniture. And yep. whatever we could yep. buy for our home decor, we're like, oh, you throwing that out, Mike? Hey, 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 I'll, I'll take it. My son's doing that right now. He's taking all every single castaway yep. he possibly can because he sees the dollar signs and how much money he's saving as he sets up his own apartment condo. You know, So I get that. And then in your 30s, you kind of like, okay, well, we have a little bit of money, but you buy what's on sale and you're replacing the old ugly couch in the living room with something new, but it's not great. But we hit our 40s. And you're kind of like, wow, we have a little more money and we saved up and, you know, now we're getting the nice furniture or now we're going to do a renovation. And then, you know, I hit 50 a couple of years ago and everything now is like a 10 years old, 12 years old. And you're like, well, it's not broken because we don't have little kids anymore. And gosh, we spent a lot of money on it. And it's, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just outdated. And then you're like, 
oh, that's how that happens. <laughs> oh, this is why. And my clothes still fit. That's and right. That's right. Yeah, I know the lapels aren't quite right. And then the other thing that happens with irrelevance is stuff changes, right? And so all the beige, our whole upper floor right. until earlier this year was all beige and brown. And apparently that's not what the cool kids are doing. So it was time what for I've renovation heard. for a number of different reasons. But, you know, everything's white and gray and off-white. And, you know, now, you know, it's all updated. And we just sort of decided to go that way for a number of different reasons. But it would be so easy not to. And, you know, we tried to make it not trendy, but timeless. But there is no such thing. And that's a thing. So, so the antidote to irrelevance is change. And right. the problem with change is change never asks permission. It just happens, right? So all of a sudden, you're the cool kid. You're the young leader. You got all the strategy. You're the, you know, you're the top sales guy. And, you know, but you're still making phone calls and nobody makes phone calls anymore. And you can't figure out why your numbers are dropping and these kids are, you know, on their phones and they're doing it differently than you are. And then all of a sudden, you notice people start to roll their eyes when you speak and that gets uncomfortable or you realize that all of your musical and movie references are 10 years out of date and then they're 20 years out of date and then you listen to music today and you're like that isn't even music and you're like you know, you're that's like right. whoa that's how irrelevance happens and i've seen it happen in business I, I was honestly i was surrounded by people as a young leader in the church who were 20 30 years my senior and really had no idea how to reach my generation that's right and, and here's why it's important. It's not because God really cares about the decor in your house. It's not because he really cares how wide your lapels are, or how skinny your tie is, or, you know, whether your pants are too high, too low, too skinny, too loose, whatever. God doesn't care about any of that. But relevance matters because it's simply permission to speak into the culture and the people. Ooh. And if you're perceived as irrelevant, if the 20-year-olds are like, Mike, you just don't, you don't get it. And it's not like you have to be the cool 49-year-old, right? It's not there. We've all seen 49-year-olds who are trying to convince the world that they're 29. That's right. No 29-year-old in the world believes that you're 29. Trust me. All right. They're, they're like, you're not fooling anybody. And your friends are like, well, that's a bit weird. Yeah. All right. So, but, but I've found that if I can figure out, and, and the way, the principal way, the hack here is get a lot of people around you that's who are good. younger than you. And, you know, so I was in a meeting yesterday at our church and we're planning out the next series, which is actually based on my book. Didn't see it coming. And I'm trusting them to pick the music more than I'm going to pick the yep. music. Um, because I, my, my musical tastes aren't exactly 2018 and I'm okay with that. And half the time, I don't know the songs at our church and that's okay. That's right. And, you know, the graphic design stuff, I, I don't have good ideas. I, I, I want to be comfortable with it in the end. But I'll let the 25-year-olds and the 32-year-olds figure that stuff out. And uh, I will just, you know, do that. And then if I, and, and this is the amazing thing for me, you know, we both do podcasts, but what I'm learning about my audience on my blog and podcast and my Facebook page and the people who will buy this book is generally they're 20 years younger than me. That's right. And, and I now have staff that are, this is scary, over 30 years younger than me. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. That's crazy. Um, but what they'll do is they help me stay current. They help me stay young. And otherwise, you become part of that cynics club that meets for breakfast and talks about what's wrong with all those young people today and why they can't spell and how come nobody takes a phone call. Everybody only wants to text. They can't do email. 
They, they, they don't care about anything but themselves. And you just roll your eyes at them while they roll their eyes at you. So if that's how you want to live, stay irrelevant. But I think that's how it happens. I, I agree. I had a guy on my staff a couple of years ago. He said, you know how old people get old? This was so good. He said, I know how old people get old. He said, is when their kids grow up and they graduate. From that point forward, all they do is hang around other old people. They're never yeah. around young people anymore. And it's so true. They get in their own Sunday school class in the traditional setting or their own small group. They're in a neighborhood with all people like them they have no touch and i remember this guy saying this was guys 20 years ago he said if you want to stay young stay involved and so i remember when my son graduated from high school i stayed plugged into that local high school coaching and and helping out with athletes there and you go golly it it's such an antidote for keeping you from being irrelevant. I mean, you learn really quickly. You're not cool. That is, my kids are quick <laughs> to remind me of that too. But, but you do, it does help that process of becoming irrelevant. And, you know, it, you, you and we were talking about Andy earlier, Andy Stanley. Andy does such a great job getting feedback from new employees there at North Point. You know, he talks about the feedback loop and the process of sitting down with a new 25-year-old employee after their first six months, asking them the question, what a great question, what, what here is what you thought it would be and what isn't what you thought it would be, and listening to their feedback. And man, that is a, it's a gutsy move, but a brave move to keep you from being irrelevant as well. It's so brave to totally want to know agree. what, yeah, want, want to know what they think. And I'm going to close on this one, Carrie. You talked about pride. And I think mm-hmm. we, all, we all know scripture, pride becomes before the fall. Help me out real quick. What do you think is the biggest difference between confidence and pride? So you get a leader, you got to be confident to be a great leader in any field. Where does pride slip in to a mm-hmm. leader and get them? How does that happen? Yeah, it's a perceptive question, Mike. So, you know, a lot of people particularly in the church world, uh, adopt a false definition of humility. Mm-hmm. And that is, I'm not that good a leader. I'm really not that gifted. I'm not that talented. No, I'm not. Well, wait a minute. Stop. What is under that? Um, a lot of the, well, what if God actually did gift you to lead? What if you really are, um, you know, top at what you do? What if, what if he's given you an incredible gift? And then we're like, well, then that would be arrogant. You're going around boasting about yourself all the time. You know what? It, to me, pride is simply this. It's an obsession with self. That's it. It's just an obsession with self. And uh, we, we have no problem, for the most part, being obsessed with ourselves. Um, mm. And my favorite definition of pride was written decades ago by C.S. Lewis, who said, pride is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. I know a lot of leaders have heard that quote, but my goodness, it's so rich because um, my my theory in the book is is that, you know, if narcissism is the issue, and it is an issue, it's an issue in corporate, it's an issue in the church, um, you know, it was a short paragraph. It's like, go get some professional help, turn yourself in, you know, <laughs> whatever you need to do, just, just deal with it. Okay. You're not that good. You're not, you shouldn't be that full of yourself, but where I think it shows up in probably more leaders lives than a narcissism would, would affect, uh, it shows up as insecurity. Mm. 
And I think there are way more insecure leaders than there are narcissistic people. And so that is exactly that moment that you encapsulated in your question, where it's like, well, what if I am really good at leading? What if I do have to have confidence? So I can't have confidence because, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. A lot of leaders are insecure. And where insecurity shows up, and that was more my battle, is if you're an insecure leader, you're jealous of the gift of others. So you don't want to be around an Andy Stanley, you don't, you know, and you certainly don't want him part of your church because he'll be better than you. And then people will follow him, not you. You know what that is? That's insecurity. And listen, I've been following Andy Stanley on video for the last decade. So I had to swallow that pill big and hard a decade over a decade ago. Uh, You know, when Andy follows you and then you follow him, you, you have to overcome your insecurity pretty quickly. So, so, you know, another leader, a leader who's insecure will very much hesitate to put anybody else in the spotlight. That's right. It's like, it's all about me. And you're not doing that because you think you're great. You're doing that because you fear you're not great. And that is what insecurity does. So I talk to a lot of leaders, tons of leaders are insecure. And really, once again, that, that actually is a form of pride because pride is an obsession with self. And what is the insecure leader? The insecure leader is obsessed with themselves. The insecure leader only thinks about themselves, self, can't think about the organization, can't think ahead. And so we end up in the place where we we just cap our own leadership. We cap our organizations because we're just self-obsessed. So only humility will get you out of what pride got you into, but humility will get you out of insecurity as well. Yeah. And you, I love how you unpack how humility can be learned. And one of the ways humility can be learned is humiliation. And I had never (laughs) thought about it. That was a great line. I had never thought about it that way, but that is a way that we can learn humility and learn that it really, at the end of the day, as Rick Warren said, at the beginning of his book, it's not about you. It really, Mm -hmm. none of this is about you. That's so good. Humiliation is involuntary humility. (laughs) That's exactly right. And that's so sobering, right? When you do something that's embarrassing or, or, you know, something that was secret becomes known and you're humiliated, that is involuntary humility. That's all that is. And all of a sudden, you didn't want to be humble, but now you have been humbled. And I think Jesus had something to say about being humble um, if you exalt yourself. So, you know, that, that is, is really terrifying. And when I look back at the times where I have felt humiliated, so who can't be humiliated? Mm. A humble person. That's right. Because you've already taken the low place. You're already at the base level. You aren't building yourself up. So if somebody says, oh, you know, Carrie, well, he, he has real problems with this. It's like, oh, well, first of all, I've been hopefully honest in my public talk. And yes, that is an issue that, that I'm working on in my life. And I feel badly that it's still an issue. Well, that's not humiliation. That's humility, no. hopefully. Um, you know, and you don't want to be like Moses. I'm the most humble man in the whole world. No, that's <laughs> Who wrote right. that? That's I don't right. think that part was written by Moses. <laughs> but um, anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, where it is a habit. And I, for a long time, because I struggle with insecurity, I'm like, when am I going to feel humble? And for some reason, I think it's just the cultural Kool-Aid. I felt like humility had to be an attitude, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm not. No, no, no. Humility is a habit. So a couple That's of good. hacks for humility. Number one, push other people in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Just push them into the spotlight. If, even if you think they're better at what you do than you are, give them a shot. 
put him in the spotlight, let him shine. Um, again, to quote Andy, because uh, I think it's the best stuff I've ever seen on jealousy and insecurity. In Enemies of the Heart, he writes, how do you handle envy, which a lot of people professionally struggle mm-hmm. with? He says, you celebrate what God has given others, and you leverage what God has given you. So, so you good. celebrate what God has given Oh, man, mm-hmm. I've been working on that for a decade since he first wrote about that. It is, it is the bomb. It is, it is, it is magic tonic friends. If you can celebrate what God has given, and that's not privately, that's publicly. It's like, Mike is fantastic at, or this guy brought one of the best messages our church has ever heard, or wow, I'm lucky to sit on the bench next to this guy because he's so good. She is so sharp on these issues. There's nobody better. And then what has God given me? Well, he's given me this little bit. So I'm going to go and leverage that. That's what I'm going to do. That's what humility will do. And it is a much happier, healthier way to live. But you have to voluntarily, and again, scripture is, is, is rife with verses like this, humble yourself. Right. You have to put, you have to force yourself down on the floor. And that also, for the most part, eliminates humiliation and embarrassment because you're already there. That's right. That's right. You know, and you, you've done so good, Carrie, on your podcast about opening up that wound of burnout and walking through. Uh, there, there's a phrase we use a lot at North Star. I heard a guy say years ago, that which is most personal is most universal. And when you mm. do that, I think every guy goes and every leader, lady leader goes, yeah, me too. And you close this book, you talk about burnout, but then you talk about emptiness and how um, we get to that place of going, God, I've achieved everything. I've got the rings. I've got the stuff. You And I look at where you are now, Carrie. You're, you're the gold standard of podcast. You are, you're the, I believe, you and two or three other guys are right there in your own league of the best interviewers I have ever listened to and look up to. Your blog is read by hundreds of thousands of people. You are at the Orange Conferences. You have gotten a lot of acclaim and you read the words that Solomon said, all is meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. In your twenties, would you have understood that verse as well as you understand it in your fifties? No. And I would, I would like to understand it differently because I would like to believe Mike that when all your dreams come true, you're like, yes, this is the most amazing thing in the world. And, you know, if you, I started here in ministry 23 years ago, if you had shown me a a snippet of what life would be like today, I would say, number one, you're wrong. That can't possibly happen. And I I, I wake up as the most surprised person every day in the world. So it's like, I'm very thankful. uh, As Andy has said, leadership's a stewardship, so I better steward it well. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that. But, you know, there's this, this battle that all of us have, and I think most of it, maybe the truly humble don't have it. One of my favorite books of all time, people always ask me, what are your top books? Henry Nouwen, The Genesee Diaries. Nobody's ever heard of that book, but mm-hmm. it is fantastic. And it was before he wrote a lot of his other stuff that is now very well known. He went to a, a monastery in 1974 in upstate New York, in Genesee County, New York. And studied with, I think it was Trappist monks for three, six months, something like that. And it's just his journal. Mm. And he talks about so honestly this battle between, you know, the self 
and Jesus and how he, he wants to die to himself, but he can't quite die to himself and his pride keeps sneaking up on him. And, oh, it's just, it's one of my favorite, it's probably my all-time favorite book. If I was on a desert island, I'd take the book of Ephesians if I can take the whole Bible. Yeah. And I'd take the Genesee diaries and that would probably get me through <laughs> until the end. But anyway, long story short, it's just a battle we all have, right? And anybody who's written anything or launched a podcast or done anything, started a business, started a church, uh, you know, started a career in sports, anybody who's done any of that, you kind of hope that it goes well, right? I don't know too many people who are like, hope it fails, right? We all, we all, <laughs> we all hope it goes well. And, um, you know, and that means like more eyeballs, more people. So I had a day a few years ago where, you know, I was getting, I don't know, maybe at the time, 5,000 people a day reading my blog, maybe 8,000, I don't remember. All of a sudden, 436,000 people showed up on my blog in a single day. Wow. Still, when I go in and look at the stats, it's still like all-time high, 436,000 people. And that's like, that is, that is inconceivable to yeah. me, that that many people read. And by the end of the, it was one post in particular. And by the end of the week, over a million people had read it. Like I thought, okay, I thought I understood viral that is viral. And it's like all your dreams come true as a writer. It's like, holy cow. Now, how did I feel the next week? Already, I couldn't ride that high very long. Already, yeah. I started to think, well, I'm going to be happy because, you know, traffic went back to normal, it bumped yeah. up a bit, but like back to that range, I'm like, I'm going to be happy writing for 10,000 people a day for 5,000 people, for 15,000 people. I'm like, well, wait a minute, what kind, of, what kind of conversation is this that you're having, right? With yourself. That's like, shut up, self, right? But yep, you're, you're yep. having this debate. And what I've found, and, and this, I think pastors can feel this when they have all-time attendance highs, when you launch a new campus and you're on the other side, you open a building, you know, you open up a new division in your company, you, you start a new enterprise, and things are going well. And on the outside looking in, everybody's like, high fives. That is incredible. Yeah. On the inside, you're going, you know, the Jack Nicholson question, is this as good as it gets? Yeah. Like, really? Really? What is that? And I've really, I've really wrestled with it. I say it's my favorite section of the book. Nobody else thinks so, but it's my favorite section. It's why we ended with it. Because I think it's the gnawing thing. And, and to me, to diagnose that, it's a tale of two kingdoms. Yeah. And on the days where I feel empty, I realize, oh, wait a minute, I am not obsessed with the kingdom of God right now. I am working for the kingdom of me. And the kingdom of me is a sad little kingdom. And I'm always going to feel empty. And Solomon, you know, I heard Andy refer to him recently as a pagan priest, which I thought was really interesting or a pagan leader, because I've always thought of Solomon as a God follower. But really, when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, and they all have foreign gods, and you're building foreign temples, you probably really are a pagan. Um, but you know, he gets to the height of his, his power, and he is so rich and so famous. I'm not sure that we really have a parallel in our no. culture today. He was so rich, he devalued silver in his lifetime. Like mm. nobody on planet Earth is so rich that they are single-handedly devaluing currencies, right? I mean, Apple's worth a billion dollars yep. now, but they're not, that's not impacting the U.S. dollar. So, you know, he was so rich, he devalued silver. It says in, in the Bible that silver was as common as clay or something like that because Solomon was so loaded. He had everything. And then when, when people from around the world, when world leaders would come and visit him, uh, they would hear, you know, his legend spread around the world. 
And then they would leave and, and they would be like, wow, he's even better and wiser than we heard. When does that ever happen? Usually you get there and go, oh, he's not that great. But, yep. you know, so, so this guy had everything. And how does he start off his treatise on life? Meaningless, meaningless. Right. Everything's meaningless. I built homes for myself. I used to get drunk. It wasn't happy. And there's this weird cycle of accumulation. Somebody gave me this when I was in my 20s that is just, it's proven true over and over again. And if, you know, as soon as you get a little bit ahead in business and ministry and life, whatever, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want more. It's the site. I call it the cycle of accumulation. So I want more. So I've got one car. I want two. I've got, you know, uh, one fridge half full. Now I want the fridge full so that when people come over, there's extra. We had one box of cereal. Now we have two boxes of cereal, you know? So your, your first step is more. And then you get more, but you look around and all your friends have more and you're like, okay, well, what's beyond more? So uh, the next step is better. All right. So we're going to get rid of that little entry level car. We're going to get a better car. We're going to get rid of our starter home. We're going to build a custom home. Um, you know, we're going to get a garage fridge because, you know, we throw parties on the weekend and, and some more. So you just have more, more vacation. We can do two this year, honey. We have money in the bank or, you know, we're going to put it on our credit card, whatever you decide yeah. to do with that. Right. So now you do more. And as you do more, you do better. And then you notice all your friends are doing better too. And so now what's left? And, and the third place in the cycle of accumulation is, okay, we did more, we did better. Well, we better do different. So different is like, did you know, Mike, that there's, uh, this is a very rare t-shirt. You have to actually be at the Apple store in Cupertino to buy it. I've actually got two of those. Um, do you know this pen? <laughs> only, only three of them were made. Or, hey, this is a rare vintage of wine. Mm. There's only 10 of these left in the world. Or, hey, this was used in the World Series in 1999, and it's signed by the starting pitcher and the manager who died last year, so you can't really replicate that. And we get into these more, better, different cycles of accumulation. You know, this is a bespoke suit, or, you know, this was custom designed by the best architect in Atlanta, whatever, whatever your story is. So there's more, better, different. And Solomon did that. I mean, he's like, I built homes, I built palaces, I did everything. And you know where more, better, different leads to? Despair. Yep. Despair. Yep. And I saw that in law when I was 25, 26 years old. I saw all these lawyers who were making ridiculous amounts of money, driving their Lexuses, uh, living in the right homes and all the nice neighborhoods, and they were miserable. Yep. I, I had one lawyer come in and I had to get his permission to use this story in the book and he graciously gave it. But he showed up one day waving on a Friday afternoon to me, a student. He's waving this lottery ticket in my face and he says, if I ever win this thing, you'll never see my face again. Now he owned the firm. So, wow. I mean, imagine doing that at your church. You know, you show up at North Star Church, you wave a lottery in the face of your <laughs> congregation lottery ticket. Hey, guys, if I ever win this thing, you'll never see my face again. Like, there might be some know, that will be happy. That might be a good <laughs> They might go, God, my, that would be great. But, you know, that's emptiness. And yeah, it sure is. And I saw that problem in my 20s, and I thought, well, that won't apply to me. And, you know, there's a part of me. That when I read Solomon's story, I'm like, okay, well, it didn't work for Solomon, but give me that level of influence and that level of money, right. I'm going right. to be happy. But it doesn't work that way. And you and I, intellectually, we know it doesn't work that way. Emotionally, we want to believe it's different. So what that is, Solomon, thank you for that revelation, that insight. That's the kingdom of me. That's right. And it leaves you feeling empty. But fortunately, there's another kingdom. 
And on the days I get it right, the, the, and it's not every day, but on the days I get it right, there's a kingdom of God. Yep. And it's, it's a paradox because it requires you to die to yourself. But um, when you die to yourself, something greater rises. And I think there's no end to the sad discontent of making you the center of your life. Mm. Um, but if you will die to you and live for the kingdom, there's a joy that starts to come. There's a contentment that starts to come. There's a, a satisfaction that starts to come. And on my good days, I feel that. Yeah. On my bad days, I'm right back into the rotten old kingdom of me. And, uh, you know, that's another thing for maybe we can, we can close off here. But, you know, if you're thinking of the kingdom of God, kingdom of me, and, and I know not everybody who reads a book is going to have a faith perspective. And I'm like, listen, I really believe the kingdom of God is everything. That's where I've, you know, kind of put my life, I hope, <laughs> on, on my good days. I'm into the kingdom of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But at a bottom line, you need a mission that's bigger than you. Because I'm firmly convinced when you're working with millennial and Gen Z leaders, nobody wants to work for you anymore. That's you know, right. the days of 40 years with a company, here's your gold watch, retire, etc. That is long gone. And people don't want to work for you. So when I want to motivate younger leaders, it is not, oh, you know, work for me and make my life better. It is, we have this cause, you know, we mm, are trying to create mm. a church that unchurched people love to attend and that will roll you out of bed in the morning or in my company that does my blog and my podcast. It's to help people thrive in life and leadership. Like we get to do this every day, guys, we get to help leaders, this book, you know, I want to help people thrive in life and leadership, the podcast, I want to help people thrive in life and leadership, blog posts, help people thrive in life and leadership. You know, my preaching, I want to, I want to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Those are rallying cries that transcend people. And that is a kingdom worth living for and a kingdom worth dying for. I hope you enjoyed my time with Carrie. That was one of those calls when I got off. I just felt like I could have talked for hours, picking his brain, asking questions. And the crazy part was we just walked through his book. All the stuff we talked about today is in that book. I hope today you will go and not only order you a copy, but order your team a copy of Didn't See It Coming. There'll be a link in our show notes where you can order that. You can order off Amazon or all the other sites that are able to sell that. But it is a special, special book by a special, special leader. You know, Carrie falls in that category of leaders that are not only uber kind. We probably talked for 20 minutes before we even went on the air, and he doesn't know me from Adam. But I tell you what, the guy gets leadership. And those seven didn't see it comings, buddy, I could, I could write a book about every one of them that I have experienced, that I have gone through, that I have walked through, and that I have uh, ran into that leadership wall and that leadership blind spot. This is going to be a book that we will read. Our North Star team will read this book. It will be required reading because if you can overcome those things and you have those um, in your periphery as you lead, it'll just make you more self-aware. It'll just make you better. And here's what I would say about Carrie. You know, every episode we have a leadership word. Here's my leadership word for Carrie Newhoff, perceptive. Carrie is a perceptive leader. 
He's a guy that doesn't watch things happen. He's a guy, and you've got that law of mind, I think, working with him, but he's uber perceptive. If you listen to his interviews, I, I would say he and Ken Coleman in the podcast market are the two gold standards of asking questions. He's just a great question asker. And to be a great question asker, you have to be perceptive. So I, I have to admit, I was a little nervous interviewing Kerry because I know how good he is. And man, I wanted to, I wanted to be good for him, but he was sure good for me. I don't know how I did, but I know he did super well. And I hope that this is an episode that you'll re-listen to. I know I took voracious notes as we met, but it's one as soon as it hits the dial, I'm going to be listening to over and over and over because it is just so good. There were so many little tidbits that he threw in there, just life experience, wisdom, learning from others. That was so good. Golly, Carrie Newhoff, thank you for sharing your life with us because we're all better for it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that selfishly I can take it in or I can say, man, I want to be a leader that makes others better. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, boy, share that with somebody. Retweet it to somebody, link it to somebody, share it with them via email. Leave a review for us because it helps others find their way. Not so they can know me. That's not the point of the podcast. The point of the podcast is so they can get better in the space that they have been put in. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, we are keeping on the same schedule. It just moved from episode 26 to episode 27. We sit down with the legendary coach, Bill Curry. Played for Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech played for Vince Lombardi, played for Don Shula. The guy is a legend of legends, coached at Georgia Tech, coached at Alabama, coached at Kentucky, was a broadcaster on ESPN, brings tons of life wisdom and stories to the table, but brings tons of leadership passion to the table. And even more than that, he brings his faith to the table. So I can't wait to join you, not two weeks from now, but next week, as we'll sit down with Coach Curry, I hope you go out today and be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.